You're listening to the podcast of Christ Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. We hope these sermons help you to know God through Christ by deepening your belief in the gospel. The reading this evening comes from Habakkuk 2, 5 through 20. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. For how long? And loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise? and those awake who will make you tremble, then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the peoples shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house. By cutting off many peoples, you have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood, and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire, and nations weary themselves for nothing? For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk, in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is the word of the Lord. God, our Father, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful that you have not kept yourself hidden from us, but that you have revealed yourself to us. You have revealed yourself to us in your word and most clearly in your son. Father, help us now through Habakkuk to see Christ clearly and to behold him. We pray for all these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. My name is Nathan. If I haven't met you, and there's several that I haven't, I'm so glad for you to be here this evening. Uh, I can't believe it's already been a week since we were last here, seven days ago. Uh, I know everyone says it, but like seriously, it's, it's very hard to believe uh, that we were just here a week ago and just that like this week was kind of just like the week right before it and the one week before the right before that. And yet each week is not actually like the one which came before it. Uh, there were some really positive things that happened this week, uh, some potential major breakthroughs and vaccine development and in other therapeutics. Uh, the NBA and Major League Baseball is back. Taylor Swift dropped an album like out of nowhere. It's great. Uh, and yet the balance, the balance still seems to be 
weighted on the discouraging side. Since we were last here, seven days ago, over 7,000 Americans have died of COVID-19. We're back up to over 1,000 deaths per day, a number that we haven't surpassed since April. And in the past week alone, that means that there is twice as many deaths in the entire 9-11 attacks. The national news, if you just turn on the nightly news, it's horrifying as protests are turning into riots. Impossible to say why, because it certainly appears that the federal police are ignoring the Constitution. But in the heat of the moment, neither side seems to be thinking about virtuous, virtuous dict or justice or the dictates of constitutional rights. The, the president of the Portland NAACP actually wrote on Friday in the Washington Post this week lamenting that what began and what was supposed to be about black lives, he feels now is more about white spectacle. What a mess. It is discouraging. And the local news isn't much better. We just basically turn on every night as economic and social unrest is rising, so is the homicide rate in our city. And not to mention, though technically last week, we lost paragons of virtue and fortitude and of wisdom and of courage in the deaths of J.I. Packer and of John Lewis. And yet, it seems like there are still some small pockets of light. This is what John Krasinski was trying to highlight in his uh, Some Good News YouTube phenomenon. And yet, still, while there are some pockets of light, the darkness is just closing in and consuming, like the nothing from the never-ending story. Well, last week, we saw Habakkuk wrestling through the dizzying and the confusing reality of God's promise to judge the wickedness of Judah with and through the even more wicked Babylonians. Though confused, Habakkuk was careful and he was deliberate as he stepped towards the minefields of bringing his prayers of lament to God, his prayer of sad confusion. And even though he didn't understand, he parked himself in defiant faith, defiant against all of the surrounding circumstances, faith in God's good and wise promises, just like we defiantly sang earlier of, yes, I will, in the lowest valley, yes, I will choose to follow and trust in you. And, and God responded to Habakkuk that those who live by, those who act by faith in these promises will actually be considered and will be as those who are just and righteous. This man, the one who lives by faith, is in stark contrast to the man who is puffed up and a proud man in verse 4 of chapter 2, who does just what he wants, who lives only by what he sees. And yet, we didn't get to verse 5 of chapter 2 last week, which you heard Emily begin our reading with this evening. God comes back to this proud and puffed up man and says that he is a man that is drunk on wine. Literally, like in Daniel 5, the, the Babylonian king, Belshazzar, is hosting a huge drunken party on the very night that he loses his kingdom to the Medes as they invade. Or even, maybe not even literally, but figuratively, like a drunken man, Babylon is just stumbling around the ancient Middle Eastern world, just taking and pillaging and killing, not considering at all the consequences. And so verse 5 like seriously, is describing Babylon like the nothing, if you were a kid like me who grew up in the 90s and watched the never-ending story all the time. Babylon is like the nothing whose greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects 
all, and collects as his own all peoples. And so the question is, will the nothing win? Will all life and light be consumed by the darkness? No. The evil and the darkness, the nothing is on a leash. Evil is on a timeline. Injustice has an expiration date. And so what follows in the rest of chapter 5 are five woes, W-O-E-S, woes against the, the coming Babylonian conquerors. They are coming, and yet there is woe to them. A woe really means just alas, like uh, therefore, this is just what's going to happen. It's not necessarily and always like a strict curse, like a, like a you know, a, a pox in your house. Uh, may your children always smell like cheese or something like that. It's not that kind of a curse, but just that this is what is going to happen. God gives these words to Habakkuk with a disclosure of what is going to happen, and each woe begins with the evil that Babylon does, but then ends with but this is what will happen. Alas, this is where your Babylon, where your evil is leading. And that's why in verse 6, these woes will be given to the oppressed people to actually use in a taunt against the oppressor. This is a taunt song that you just heard Emily read. Everything that we just read, these are words, these are songs for Israel, for Judah to actually inhabit and to make their own. For the coming years of victimization, of oppression, while they are oppressed and exiled into Babylon, these are the words that they are to sing in hope. But again, these are to be believed in faith because it sure doesn't look like any of this is going to come to pass. It sure looks like Babylon will just continue on forever. They feel and look indestructible. Their power seems infinite. And so these are promises and songs that Judah must believe in faith. And God gives these woes to his people to believe and live in hope as they sit in suffering. Five woes, five sections here. Five woes against theft, isolation, exploitation, manipulation, and idolatry. So we're going to walk through all five of these. First of all, in verses 6 through 8, a woe against theft. Verse 6, shall not all these, all these, those in Judah, those who are oppressed, take up their taunt against him, against Babylon, with scoffing and riddles for him, and say, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own, for how long, and loads himself with pledges. Babylon is, is just walking around the Middle East with like a giant shop vac, just sucking up every last resource. Money, resources like wood and trees from Lebanon, as is described later in the chapter, or animals later in the chapter, even people, just sucking it all up. If something exists out there, it should be used, and it should be used by me however I want it, Babylon seems to be doing. Now, a quick note with how we're going to be thinking and even applying these woes for the rest of the way out. On the one hand, these woes can come as immensely comforting to us all the stuff that we just thought about, the evil, the injustice, the wickedness that we even experience in our own lives has an expiration date. COVID-19 has an expiration date, or at least the societal effects have an expiration date, just as science and medicine and public health can begin to catch up. And Habakkuk 2 should come as an immense comfort to Christians who are experiencing similarly serious wickedness. Our brothers and sisters in North Korea and in China and in Hong Kong, in Syria and in Iraq and Afghanistan, in Nigeria and in Somalia and in Sudan. 
And undoubtedly, this chapter would have also been comforting to American slaves in the American South, that is, if their masters hadn't removed those problematic passages in the authorized version that slaves were able to have. And it would even continue to be comforting for black Americans in the Jim Crow era and in the mid-20th century, uh, mid-20th century, like even black World War II and Korean War veterans who fought just as courageously as their white counterparts, but then came home and, unlike their white counterparts, didn't receive a GI Bill. Money that could have been used in the 1950s housing boom, they received nothing. What injustice, what inequality. Or when politicians and city planners and home builders, mortgage lenders operated often explicitly and in writing so that black Americans would not be able to buy homes only in certain neighborhoods. The personal and societal wealth of black Americans has been often vacuumed up by the rest of white America. Even in less blatantly racist systems like weighting admission standards into colleges if your parent or your grandparent went to that university. Many universities which weren't even integrated until 50 or 60 years ago. And so, while this chapter could certainly be believed in hope for black Americans and for some of us who have also been victims of injustice in different ways, this chapter comes with, to us in hope that inequality and injustice has an expiration date. Full justice will one day come. But the question for the majority of Americans is, is who am I in Habakkuk 2? Am I really and actually the victim of injustice? In some ways, yes, and in some ways that are growing increasingly worrying. But rather than thinking of America like God's covenant people, living uh, a nation living in the pursuit of righteousness, like, like, I don't know, Israel under David, the nation pursuing obedience to God, rather are Christians in America today more like Daniel living in Babylon, not like some uh, Israelite living under David. And unlike Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego and their godly steadfastness, perhaps the Christian's greatest temptation is to become Babylonian, to just themselves begin to take and isolate and exploit and manipulate and to worship idols. Yeah, probably. And so what? Well, we'll talk more practical application and all these things in just a minute, but, well, is all of America tainted through and through by so much white supremacy, and if you are a white that you need to apologize and seek atonement for just being white, the majority white culture certainly has much to grow in and learn from and, and, and grow in humility and sacrifice and in generosity, but I think not, because I don't have time to fully go more into that, and contrary to the pervasively growing narrative, I would be happy to meet with you and or recommend some, some good and thoughtful reading to push back against the growing white fragility model of thinking. But a culture today, on both ends of the social and political spectrum, now begins to scan the world looking more for heretics than converts, looks more to destroy rather than to persuade. And so, here, finally, is the alas part of this first woe that it is really, really dumb to just walk around the world with a shot back, just sucking up all of the people and the resources. Eventually, the people that are being sucked from will just eventually say enough is enough. And certainly there has been some unhelpful and unwise overreaction in the past few months, but the seedbed from the first Minnesota protest 
to the seedbed of the Black Lives Matter movement is enough is enough. It's just really dumb. It's a really dumb long-term social and economic policy to keep taking. It won't last forever. Eventually, Babylon, in this context, Babylon will meet their end. The Medes, the, the Persians are going to be coming for you, Babylon. And the spoils of the vacuum cleaner are going to get violently shaken out. It's going to end badly for Babylon. Now, the oppressed here are not told, they are not prescribed to do this, to begin to this violent uprising against the oppressors. But it's just Habakkuk, God is saying through Habakkuk that that's just what's going to happen. People will finally say enough is enough. And so, a woe against Babylon's theft. And a warning to us to consider the ways in which we are tempted toward taking as well. Now, a woe against their isolation, verses 9 through 11, starting in verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house, to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. So not only is Babylon sucking the world dry, but the tube that goes all the way to the vacuum canister, it goes all the way back to Babylon. The Babylonians can just sit in their palaces comfortably and not have to see or think about where all this magical wealth just came from. Not have to think about the theft and the devastation and the suffering that brought about all of this comfort. But the alas is coming. These fancy houses and palaces will become places of shame. Verse 10, you have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork respond. Eventually, these devastated and shamed people, whether they are already in Babylon or whether they come as conquerors themselves, they will see the walls made from the stones that were taken from their land. They will see the wood of their houses taken from their forests and the illusion of comfort and safety and security that the Babylonians had always thought that they enjoyed will now no longer be comfortable or secure. It will be devastated. Now, confronting our Babylonian tendencies, does this mean that every Christian ought to, like the rich young ruler that Jesus confronted, now sell everything that he or she owns? Well, just like Jesus didn't prescribe that for all of his followers, but uh, in fact, he didn't prescribe that for any of his followers, except for that one person whom Jesus could peer into his soul and see that the pursuit of money and of possessions was the thing that would prevent him from, from faith in Christ. It was the chief rival of idolatry. And so for many, perhaps that might be a call for us, a call of radical living. Maybe for some of you, you choose to never own a house. So that you might be more geographically uh, flexible or to own a house in neighborhoods that apart from considering the needs of others apart from the sake of the gospel neighborhoods that you would have never considered living in perhaps maybe for some of you you actually do consider moving and living downtown to be nearer and amongst the, the neighborhoods that surround this building but that's not a prescription for all in the Babylonian Albuquerque in which we live, uh, there is one couple on our suburban street that regularly attends a church in Albuquerque. And so people need the gospel all over this city. There is no prescription in the Bible for where or what part of town you ought to live in. However, 
if you are living in a certain part of town so that you might be sheltered, that you might be completely isolated, that you don't have to be regularly reminded of suffering, of vulnerability of other parts of town. Well, that, that's where we've got a problem. And that's when Habakkuk becomes to cut like a knife. Eleven of us on Friday afternoon attended a Zoom training with our new partnership of the Shine program in which, which Shine partners churches with public schools. It's not officially official yet, but we are really hoping to build on our friendship with Eugene Field Elementary right around the corner from us on Edith. Not just in providing weekend food bags for many of the Title I kids who, for over the weekend who can't depend on school breakfast and lunch like many of us have been providing over the past few months, but actually then beginning to support and encourage teachers and faculty, eventually building after-school programs and tutoring and Lord willing, beginning relationships with parents for those who want it, even mentoring programs and friendships. So we've said from day one here at Christ Church that we want to be about loving the people of this city who, apart from intentionality, would likely remain on the margins, would remain on the margins of society, and would certainly remain on the margins of our own thinking, our own care, our own prayer. God's people do not stay isolated from the margins, but they move toward them. So let's keep at it. Let's move now with renewed energy towards it, towards loving people, not from keeping ourselves from suffering, but moving towards it. Not for our own appeased consciences or something self-serving like that, but because Christ has first loved us when we were in similar states of vulnerability. So woes against taking and isolation. And now third, against exploitation in verses 12 through 14. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. We've already hit on some of these things, but historically the founding and the building of many, if not most American cities have been found on inequitable and frankly wicked principles and opportunities. So what do we do about that now? I don't know. I really don't. I've been listening to and reading and trying to just learn from many different kinds of economic, ec economic, economists, thank you, and uh, social scientists and historians and city developers. They're all presenting a thousand different kinds of models and suggestions for a wiser and a fairer and a more compassionate future. And Here's the thing, though, just because something sounds and feels compassionate doesn't mean that it's actually wise, and it doesn't mean that there won't be disastrous, unintended, decades-long consequences for well-intentioned plans and policies. But seriously, these kinds of conversations can just be dizzying and can be paralyzing. Like as drone footage and news comes each week from China's treatment of the Uyghur people, there's seriously a new holocaust happening right now in western China with concentration camps and forced sterilization and all, the whole thing. That's just intense and acute, but there's just even just worldwide general suffering then that you're just like, it's just too much. I don't even, I, there's nothing I can do because there is just too much. And it feels that way. And so for some of you high schoolers, some of you college students, perhaps those of you who haven't declared a major yet, keep working really hard. Maybe we need more of you to become lawyers. 
Maybe we need more of you to become city councilors and mayors and governors and presidents and state or U.S. representatives and senators. Maybe for the rest of us, we actually need to write and call our representatives more often. And yet, because working conditions are so bad for workers around the world that build our American smartphones and our clothing and our electronics, across the board, it just probably won't do to say, yeah, well, I'm just now going to boycott Apple or boycott Samsung or something. But maybe we as Christians can just at least look to slow our consumerism. Perhaps maybe we don't buy every single New Year's model of the iPhone or a bigger TV every single year. Maybe we skip two or three or four models. And maybe, like Paul McCartney once famously sang, I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in to keep my mind from wandering. The problems in this world are so big and so great that maybe we focus more of our attention on our actual communities, spending hours and time with a mentored or a changed life or two, rather than changing and trying to change international financial markets, international policies, fixing the holes that we can actually fix, the, the holes that we can actually begin to move toward and put our hands to, rather than being overwhelmed and then paralyzed by that which we can't. But then, of course, praying for and mobilizing where we can. But evil is on a timeline. Exploitation has an expiration date. Alas, verse 13, behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Just as we sang earlier, let your glory fill the earth, O God. The whole earth will be filled with the knowledge of God and a full understanding of our own wickedness, of the wickedness in which we have even participated. Justice comes against theft, against isolation, against exploitation, and then fourthly against verses 15 through 17, manipulation. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and you make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. The powerful Babylonians, they come in with the allure of wine and of many other attractive things to use and abuse before they conquer. But God is not blind, and God is not unaware of this abuse. And our God would not be good if in the end he did not fully and finally judge sin and judge this kind of wickedness. But again, Habakkuk likely doesn't make it through this Babylonian invasion. Like we mentioned last week, unlike Isaiah, we never hear from Habakkuk again. A generation will come and go entirely before Babylon will meet its end. And so remember last week, Habakkuk was asking, why don't you do something? And God answers, I will. I'm going to bring Babylon to judge wickedness. And Habakkuk responds, but wait a minute, what, what about their wickedness? God answers, don't worry, I'm going to judge their wickedness too. And so what Habakkuk needed was a wider perspective of God's slow-moving justice and the slow-moving invasion of the kingdom of God. But when we don't see much change, when we don't see much progress in the world or in our relationships over a month, over six months, over our lifetime, it can be bewildering, it can be confusing, I thought God was good. I thought God was just. I thought he would judge wickedness. 
for many of you who have experienced in your life the kind of abuse the Babylonians are being condemned for here. And your abusers still walk around the world like nothing ever happened. Does God see? Does God care? If our perspective is actually millennia, if our perspective is eternal, given the fact that we might not see justice in our own lifetimes, but we know and trust that justice will come, then this is comforting. Even a wider perspective on the relatively short past four to five months that we've all been living in. A relatively short time put in contrast with the eternity of God can remove the fangs from the bite of today's loss. And the patient perspective of God's full justice absolutely, though, does not mean that we don't protest, that we don't move against actual injustice, but that we also don't get discouraged. We also don't get disappointed when the cogs keep turning undisturbed or when new cogs are no better than the ones that they replaced. We are realistic about the corrupting nature of human depravity and of human systems, and vengeance is the Lord's. We ultimately trust that God sees and will finally and fully one day act that injustice does have an expiration date, even if it extends beyond our own human expiration date. And so manipulation and abuse is not rogue, and it is not unaccountable. Which also comes to us pointedly in how so flippantly we as Americans can ignore the manipulated, ignore the exploited, the exploited in our own cavalier use of pornography. A woe is coming, alas, is coming. And so lastly now, God gives one final woe against Babylon, this time against their idolatry, verses 18 through 20. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols? Once upon a time, I, I shared a really good quote with you, and now I just can't find it anywhere. Uh, but it was essentially that God, since God has made us worship, worshiping beings, apart from worshiping him, what ends up happening is that all humans just peer down into the well. And, we, and the God that we find ourselves worshiping at the bottom is just a reflection of ourselves. The gods and the idols that the Babylonians crafted and worshiped are really just images of themselves. Gods of money and of sex and of power, and we are no different. Our eyes and our hands and our hearts worshiping nearly anything that they can grab hold of. Any passing idol. Really, the same old gods and idols of money and of sex and of power, but here comes the alas. Verse 19, woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake, to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. There's no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. All of the Babylonian and the American gods that we think will give us comfort and we think will give us security, even a sense of belonging, a sense of atonement for guilt, they are all deaf and dumb and are dead. 
They are lifeless and they are loveless. They are making demands and always breaking their promises. And I'm not the first to make this reflection, but I think these past three or four or five months have been a needed time of exposure for us all. It has shown us to be who we really are and in whom we are really trusting. Just this week, I read one pastor say this, in all my years of pastoring, I have learned this lesson. A person's spiritual maturity is not truly visible until they don't get their way. Then you see the person. And I think that's true. I think that's true. That we are exposed to see what it is that we are actually putting our faith and our trust in when we do not get our way. And generally, as Americans, especially upper middle class Americans, we are used to getting what we want and when we want it. Just because that's reality doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad thing, but maybe it's a good thing that our frustrations, even our idolatries, are being exposed. Like last week, 2020 is something that we would have never hoped or prayed for, but in many ways, thank God for 2020. Let's not waste the time in our expectation and hope to just return to normal. And so it's needed now in Habakkuk 2, and then regularly and ongoingly uh, needed to remind us that none of these gods save. No politician, no paycheck, no possession, no partner, no pornography, none of it will keep the promise of satisfaction and rest, will keep the promise of comfort and of belonging. But behold our God, seated on the throne, Come, let us adore him. Behold, our king, nothing can compare. Come, let us adore not all of these other things, not the reflection of ourself at the bottom of the well, but on him. Christ the king who has lived and died for his people to bring justice to the world, but to also receive the justice that we deserve for our own theft, for our own isolation and exploitation and manipulation and idolatry not just to save and bring his people out of Babylon, but to save and bring the Babylon out of them. For those united to him by faith, those who are banking their lives on his empty cross and his empty tomb as their substitute, that they might receive not just the justice of God, not the justice of God at all, but the open-armed forgiveness and love and welcoming belonging of God. This is why we need incisive cuts like this from these prophets. Prophets who are calling us, not just to repentance, but to transformed lives of living life in the kingdom. And we're also here to hear testimony in baptisms uh, from two sisters who have done that. Who have turned from themselves, who have turned from their own kingdom, who have turned from the reflection of themselves at the bottom of the well, and who are instead beholding Jesus, and who have looked full on his wonderful face. And so now, might we continue to be confronted by these realities in Habakkuk 2 and the hope that is to come in Habakkuk 3, but now might we be encouraged by these lives of faith, by these testimonies of his grace, that we might behold him together all the more. Let's pray that we would. Our Father, we are thankful for your justice, that you will not uh, wink at evil, that you will not shrug your shoulders at wickedness, but that you are a God of goodness and of justice and of righteousness. 
But Father, we also recognize that we are proper objects of your justice, that we have rebelled against you time and time again. Our lives and our cultures have set our faces against you. And so God, we revel in your grace. We trust in your mercy. We are thankful for the cross of Christ. Help us to adore him. Help us to behold the risen Christ. Not being satisfied with good and right theology, perfect and pristine doctrine, but love for God. Love for our neighbor. Transform us, we pray. In the name of Christ, amen. We hope you have been encouraged to deeper life in Christ through the preaching of this sermon. For more information about Christ Church, visit www.christchurchabq.com.